Hey team, just a quick note before we get started, this episode is brought to you by Matrixport and Coinbase Prime. Big thanks to them for making the show possible. You'll hear more about them later. Now on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. Mark, what's going on? Oh, Mike, 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 Mike. I, I hope you're ready. <laughs> this, this is going to be an epic show. It what? is happy Bitcoin Friday. Happy Bitcoin Friday. I'm suited up. I got my embrace volatility. I was just saying, I, I got the orange pants and I got the Bitcoin bull market going on. So we are we are ready. Yes. Yes. I literally, you know, my morning routine is like I wake up, my alarm goes off. Do I actually need to get up now? Do I have 20 more minutes? Okay. And I roll over and I open up and I check uh, the price of Bitcoin. I saw it was at 47,000. I was like, let's go. All right. Yes. <laughs> We're Just excited. a week ago, China yes. banned. We were freaking out talking. And, and it's like every other, you know, can't ban a decentralized asset. Now you can, as we talked about, you can make it painful uh, in the short run. But in the long run, technology wins. So to that end, um, I'm going to pull up my first chart of the day, uh, which is a great segue that you just kind of teed me up for. And actually, someone on Twitter actually put together a Bitcoin performance post China bans, uh, so which is pretty awesome. Um, and I think you know, rewinding the clock back uh, last week, I mean, people were worried about it, but honestly, you know, the sell-off did seem pretty soft after what appeared to be a pretty hardcore ban and. You're starting to get kind of news like Alibaba stopping selling mining equipment. Uh, Huobi is uh, kind of rolling off accounts in that region. But it looks like the market kind of said, I'm not really sure I care about this. What's what's your kind of take on this uh, this latest ban and, and bump from Bitcoin? You know, I think it's, it's, as we talked about last week, it is different. You know, 2013 ban was lip service. It was kind of like, hey, don't, don't do that. Uh, 2017 had a little bit of teeth, right? I mean, they, they literally kicked out the exchanges and pushed them outside China. Now, the funny part of that, as we talked about, everybody said, just bring it, right? Bring those exchanges to us, Japan, South Korea, wherever. We'll figure out ways to benefit from that, either from taxation or revenue sharing or whatever. So it, the idea that, that you can you know, take something that is truly decentralized, that operates on a global borderless network and, and ban it, is, is kind of silly. Now, um, can they make life miserable for people? Yes, they, they did. Think about being a miner. Think about spending all your life's earnings buying mining machines. You're, you're tonning it. You're just making so much. And then boom, you're done. And they will come and arrest you and put you in jail. Uh, you know, they use the word illegal. And it's the same thing that the United States did in 1933 with gold. And the reason they did it in 1933 with gold is because the government was over leveraged and the dollar needed to float. And here, the Chinese are wildly over leveraged. Their banking system is really on the precipice. And if more deposits shift out of the banks into digital assets, crypto assets, they're in trouble. So they're doing what's natural dog backed in a corner is is going to fight and scratch and claw and and do a bump and bite so uh anyway but i love the chart and you can ban this all you want but it's literally like squeezing air in a balloon the air is just going to go someplace else yeah 
Can I offer you uh, an alternative explanation here? Like looking at this chart, this just occurred to me. Um, but one thing, one theory I'd actually love to float by you and get your opinion is it kind of looks like the the China bans as you move later and later, right? So as you progress from like 2013 to 2021, um, have actually had slightly more of an effect than Bitcoin in the early days. And I wonder if the reason that that is, is because uh, the asset class is becoming more institutional. There are more institutional holders. And I will say like over the last month or so, it's been pretty interesting to look at the performance of alternative layer ones like Avalanche, Solana, Luna in comparison to Bitcoin. Because I think previously a pretty good way of looking at alts uh, in comparison to Bitcoin is just they're high beta Bitcoin, right? Um, and uh, and now it's it's been pretty interesting to see them actually in the wake of like kind of Bitcoin trading sideways or going down, like the L1s are actually performing more strongly. And I wonder if the reason there is because Bitcoin actually did acquire something of an institutional holder base. And the institutional holders are kind of looking at China worries. They're looking at the debt ceiling. They're getting kind of spooked, right? And maybe they're moving out of Bitcoin. But the folks who are trading around in the L1 space, like they're not paying attention to any of that. You know what I mean? They're just full crypto natives. Um, the so you're going to build, absolutely to your point. I mean, and it, it really is an excellent point. And you now you think about where we are. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in 2013, this was a science project, right? That's the first they ignore you. Mm -hmm. no, no one cared what China said about Bitcoin in 2013. Most people, 99.9999% of people didn't even know what Bitcoin was, right? I told the story that that's when I got introduced to it. And I'm like, hey, I wasn't run on drugs on Silk Road. I was not a cryptography student, I'm like whatever. Talk to me about infrastructure. And infrastructure has been good to us, very good to us. But I should have bought more Bitcoin, but I didn't. And so in 2017, it's then they laugh at you, right? I mean, that's when people were literally making fun of anybody in the digital asset space. Now it's it's a fight, but the fight is futile because the technology now has advanced to a point where it's now just about building it out. And I asked this on Twitter the other day, name a technology that once it got to critical mass, that you know, they put the genie back in the bottle. I'll wait, right? I can't do it. No way. And to your point, all these other projects that look the utility token craze and the ICO craze, bunch of scams, bunch of nonsense projects, no ownership, you didn't get a share of equity, you didn't get a share of cash flows, just you know, pump and dump. Projects where there's actually revenue sharing models, where you know, DAO is a whole nother opportunity where the community actually owns the assets. This is is going to happen. We are going to live in a digital world. So you're 100 percent right, Michael. Yeah, it is something it is interesting to watch the ecosystem develop. And I, I wouldn't call it a diverse ecosystem yet by any means, but it certainly is diversifying. Right. And you definitely kind of I feel like for the first time since I've been in crypto, there are kind of distinct sectors uh, to play. It's just just kind of fascinating to watch. Um, now, returning to your the earlier point that you were kind of making about China and the situation that they're in, I want to zoom out for a second here and talk about what seems like a budding global energy crisis, right? So I put four charts up here, but there were more uh, that I could have even put up. Uh, so we're looking at, um, you know, oil is retracing to not all-time highs yet, but I'm pretty sure this is a high since like 2014. Uh, so Brent uh, crude broke uh, $80 per barrel. 
uh, over in India, and this is of particular concern to China, coal stockpiles are at uh, four-year lows. Um, European natural ga- gas prices have like quadrupled in the last year. You've got utilities going out of business as gas prices are surging. And, you know, China just put out this notice, um, you know, to secure energy at at, uh, at any means necessary uh, yesterday, right? So it's looking pretty extreme. <laughs> I mean, what's what's your take on, on everything that's happened kind of on a, on a global stage? Now, look, a um, couple things. So one, uh, we talked about this last week, you know, the cure for high prices is high prices. And the cure for low prices is low prices. And what does that mean? That means that when prices get really high, everyone and their sister jumps out and and puts capacity online, right? Mm-hmm. In in coal, right? Everyone, every mom and pop in China, you know, dug up a coal mine. And so supplies go up and when there's too much supply and a certain amount of demand, prices fall. Basic economics. This is the opposite. In fact, last uh, last year, about this time, actually a little earlier, August, September, um, I guess now we're October, right? but uh, we bought into a uh, fund in our, in our long short hybrid hedge fund. We allocate 70% of the money to external managers and then 30% we run in a, a supersized portfolio where we supersize their best ideas. And we went pretty much all in, about 20% of the fund, into uh, a long only energy manager. They only raised seven funds in their history over 20 years. They raise them about every three years. And what do they do? They wait for a massive supply disruption caused by bankruptcies. And so if you look at what happened to oil and gas and coal, and, and so they've done auto parts twice, they did airlines once, they did Met Coal a number of years ago, and now they're doing oil. And the reason is, if you look at, at the shale boom and all the cheap financing that went in these companies, uh, the COVID crisis basically put a fork in it and said, that's done. And a whole bunch of companies went bankrupt and a whole bunch of capacity went offline. And on top of that, you've got the whole ESG thing where everybody's like virtue signaling. Right. Oh, we're going to divest from this. And here's the thing. Even if every single person on the planet wanted an EV, which is probably not the case, but even if everyone wanted one, it would take 30 years. And oh, by the way, some of the rare earth minerals that go into EVs might actually be worse for the environment than some of the the hydrocarbons. So the the idea that hydrocarbons were gonna go away in a year or two was kind of silly. But what did we do? We clamped down supply chains, we changed this Again, this virtue signaling, this this public shaming of we, we seem to do that a lot lately. Uh, yeah. Public shaming of, of being supportive of of the energy business, and we have supply problems, and we got supply problems all over. And then you throw on top of it geopolitics, and the geopolitics of you know, and this is a longer conversation, but we'll do it another day. But the dollar is where it is because of geopolitics, right? We cut a deal with Saudi Arabia in 1971. We said, we'll protect you if you price all oil transactions in dollars. And because of that, we've been invading places like Iraq and Afghanistan for years because of pipelines, because of oil and gas pipelines. And Russia, on the other side, has this desire to sell gas to everyone in the world because they have more gas than anybody. But pipelines. And if we control the pipelines, like from Turkey or from, you know, offshore of Greece, uh, 
you know, we can be in control and we can, you know, put financial sanctions on, on Russia. So long story short, we have massive supply problems. We clamp down on Venezuela. Venezuela, well, they kind of self-inflicted harm, but Venezuela is not producing. We clamp down on Iran, so Iran's not producing. Saudi could solve all this in the oil side by pumping. Yeah. But they have actually shown some discipline. And part of the problem is they realize that their, what they thought was a 100-year asset is probably more like a 30-year asset. So mm. they're not going to pump it all, all at once and ruin the price. Um, so there's a lot of things going on here. But, but the bottom line is supply disruption, not just from the lockdowns. The lockdowns were stupid, full stop, just stupid. And they've caused all kinds of harm to a, a ton of different businesses, energy being one of them. But the real problem is the, the lack of, of credit available to companies that can't generate cash flow. And we finally, in at least one industry, we haven't done this in many industries, but we finally let the bad companies die. Yeah. Like the participation trophy society that we live in finally let the bad companies die, which is good. Yeah. I've got I've got a bunch of follow up questions there, uh, and I want to touch on what you said about ESG. But um, you know, I've, I'm kind of gradually coming around to this idea that we just are currently living through inflation, and it's just going to be a while before it's admitted to us um, by the government. Uh, and, yeah. and part of what gave me that uh, what was a light bulb for me uh, is I because I, this is the kind of thing I like to do in my free time. I went back, you can actually read Fed minutes going all the way back to like the 19, early 1900s. Um, and I just read, uh, you know, minutes from the Green Book uh, back in the late 60s and 70s at the onset uh, of when inflation was happening back then. And the way that they talk about it back then, I mean, it is like eerie, eerily, eerily similar. It's like, oh yeah, you know, CPI, uh, your consumer prices ticked up this quarter, but for whatever reason, we think they're going to, you know, slacken uh, towards the second half of the year. And they do that thing where it's like, oh yeah, you know, they're up 6%, but if you exclude this one line item, then it actually would have been 4%. It's like, and it's like, oh my God, they're saying the same stuff that they said back then. And I guess, you know, the, the real connection back then too, is that, uh, you know, people blame stagflation. One of the big causes there was the rising price of oil. Right. That was like a huge part of that, a huge part of that. How much do you look back at the 1970s and you're like, is that a good analogy for what we see going on today? Because I guess maybe the smooth brain part of me looks at the rising price of oil, inflation being like, oh, my God, this is looking, <laughs> starting to look uh, pretty similar. It's, it's definitely similar in that it, the 70s were caused by a supply shock. And uh, that supply shock led to, again, you're too young to remember, but I actually remember, you know, sitting in a car with my dad and mom in line, right? You had alternate days based on the, the last number of your license plate when you could get gas and the line of cars in the 70s out. And and here's a crazy thing. We almost moved to Iran in 1979. My dad worked for Arthur Anderson. He installed yeah, mainframe right. computers in hospitals. And they asked him to go to Tehran back when, you know, Tehran was still a pretty happening place if you've seen the movie. And thankfully, I guess, um, <laughs> Uh, the contra thing, I mean, the, the scandal broke and, and we ended up not going. Um, or actually, my life might have been very different. But uh, that time was, was similar but different. The, the difference is inflation spiraled out of control for exactly the reason you talk about, that they were using bad data. So Volcker had uh, 
all of this data on inflation, and a lot of it was tied to housing prices. And so the, the supply shock in commodities led to rising inflation, which pushed up the prices of housing stock. Well, then the housing stock went up, and so they tried to fight the wrong thing using interest rates and you know raised interest rates, and we created this death spiral of, of inflation. And now we fixed that the inflation measure. It's, it's something called owner's equivalent rent instead of, of property prices. Now, you're gonna show a slide in a little while that, that shows, but wait a second, owner's equivalent rent doesn't really mm. do a good job anymore because the prices now are skyrocketing everywhere and the average person can't afford to buy a house. I mean, literally, my daughter and son-in-law moved yeah. back to North Carolina uh, a year ago and they've been in a rental and can't get a house, right? Literally can't find a house to buy. If you can find one, it disappears in you know 30 minutes with 20 offers at you know 40% above ask. And it's a supply and demand problem, but it's also a money illusion problem. Mm. All of this is money illusion. It's not yeah. that these things are getting better or more valuable. It's that the currency we price them in is getting absolutely fucking, sorry, pardon my French. Although I said that once, I think I told you, to a, to a French guy and he says, why do you say that? We're not vulgar. Like, I don't know why we say pardon my French. But um, it, the, we, the, the currency is getting absolutely destroyed right before our eyes. But we're like freaking frogs in the boiling pot of water. We're like, oh, it's so nice, it's like a jacuzzi. Jump the frick out because you're going to die. I mean, it's, it's bad. I mean, it's bad, bad. It's, it's like kind of the Luke Roman thing, right? Like if you go back to Volcker, uh, the way he tamed inflation, right? Like the um, the escape valve or, or whatever analogy you want to use. It was interest rates back then. Uh, you know, with the amount of debt that we have currently, it can't be interest rates. So it kind of has to be the currency. And, you know, I, I don't know. But even, Mark, they're hearing that story, oh, you know, because I've heard those stories too, right? I, I, I wasn't around back then. But, uh, you know, waiting in line for gas. Have you tried to buy furniture? You know, have you tried to buy furniture recently? Yes, furniture, bicycles, a car. I, I, I took my, my wife's car, some tube busted, and so she had to get it fixed. And we went into the Volkswagen dealership and we pulled in. I'm like, where are all the cars? Right. I mean, there, there were no cars. I mean, literally no cars. And it's, the, I mean, global supply chains are in a shambles. Mm -hmm. And this is the law of unintended consequences, right? You you think that locked it. Well, here's the thing, right? This is bullshit. It was the plan all along, right? I actually don't believe that the lockdowns were to do anything except exactly what we've done. We've created real stress for China. And that, I believe, was was the goal. And all the other collateral damage around the world, yeah, it's a, whatever. Um but, you know, you look at plenty of countries in Europe, they didn't lock down. They're doing just fine. In fact, better in some cases. Um, and it's, there's, there's a lot of pressure being put on our enemies, in air quotes. And I, I think it's going to be with us for a while. And, and then on top of it, again, my personal opinion, is all of it. The whole COVID crisis was just a cover to do MMT, hmm. right? MMT is the dumbest idea in the history of economics. I mean, it's, it's, it's way, and look, economics is kind of a funny 
profession in the sense that most of it has been disproven by later theories and, and we just change the theories to you know fit the, the the scenario we're in but mmt is dumb name one name one I, I i defy anyone name one time ever in history where a country printing currency or creating currency out of thin air ad infinitum has produced prosperity in the long term name one you cannot do it. There is no one, I defy anyone watching, I defy anyone on Twitter, you cannot do it. You cannot tell me one time where that was a good idea. And the fact that we, with straight faces, will say, oh, Stephanie Kelton, oh, she's genius. Oh, this is such great strategy. Are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> if I have a pile of money on the desk and you put another pile of money next to it, the value of that money goes down. There is no chance, no way you can convince me ever that that money will create prosperity. No chance. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, there was a great interview uh, that Grant Williams recently did with Sam Zell, you know, legendary uh, real estate investor. Uh, he said something to the effect of like, uh, inflation is not necessarily a thing, it's a mindset. And you can see how the current situation that we're in would affect people's mind because stuff just costs more than it did you know stuff just costs more than it used to right and it suddenly we're, we're starting to get normalized to like oh you can't get things immediately etc and uh you, you know when i was a consultant and working in supply chain uh there was not really an option right to pass price increases onto consumers Right? Like a lot of people are just like, oh, see the price of, uh, you know, steel or iron ore is going up. So consumer prices should go up that much. That's not how it works. Like commodities, you know, they can go up or down by 100%, right? Within the course of a year, the price of your car doesn't change. Why does that happen? Because there are lots of players in the value chain and they kind of play this game of hot potato where they're passing risks and costs onto each other. But I think one of the important thing that's happening now is that companies are saying, actually, Maybe we can get away with these, uh, you know, these price increases to the consumer because everyone's starting to expect it. So, I don't know. I, I kind but of am just an excuse too. It's your point about mindset. Um, if you look at uh, the transcripts of quarterly calls, okay, and you and you just look at it, and and you'll find that they all embrace whatever narrative there is to what to whitewash the fact that growth is slowing. Right. Every time, right? Whether it is inflation, which is right now, right? We have record number of mentions of the word inflation. So right. everybody's just jump. Oh, of course, it's him. And to your point, that means I, you know, corporate CEO can comfortably raise my prices or do shrinkflation, right? We've all seen the monster beverage can that shrunk for the same price. Right, right. And so there are lots of ways to, again, steal from your customer and from society. Because look, inflation is theft, okay? And the fact that we've normalized it through the repetition of a lie over and over, and that's, the, that's how the world works. If you repeat a lie often enough, no matter what it is, people will start to believe it, right? People will start to believe it. And we're seeing it with the lockdowns, we're seeing it with you know, stuff about the pandemic. Forget, you know, forget real science, right? Which is form a hypothesis, test a hypothesis, actually look at the data. It's just narrative. And narrative repeated often and often and often gets 
people to believe it. And the idea that inflation is good for you, inflation is necessary, inflation should be a goal of a central bank, has been nonsense since 19, well, actually since the 1600s when the Rothschilds invented it, but it only made it to the United States in 1913. And it's just nonsense. But mm -hmm. we are conditioned to it. And now, you know, I'm looking at, uh, you know, Notre Dame Carolina football ticket, okay, $135. Yeah. $135? Are you yeah. kidding me? What, what family can take four kids to a football game at $135? And these aren't even good seats. These aren't even the good seats. These are the seats for the visiting team. That is insane. Not, not five years ago. That ticket was sub fifty dollars, yeah. not five years ago. But it's because the dollar isn't worth what it was, because we printed so many of them, and we have a chart on this, right? Don't we? Have yeah. A, that parabolic move, and you know this one, fortunately, is only a minor chart crime. <clears throat> chart crime. You know, one of my personal pet peeves, and it's not you; it's it's people who make charts. Mm -hmm. Any chart over five years has it's to be log. log scale it just has to be um because everything looks different in log scale but but this is this is real you know the average wage of the masses has been stagnant i mean in terms of real terms it's been literally dead flat since the 1970s it has been rising in line with inflation um but in real terms you're you're falling further and further behind yet the asses that rich people own assets that rich people own houses, stocks, you know, companies, they have found ways to either through tax ruses, you know, like the famous Peter Thiel, uh, IR, or whatever it was, Roth IRA, or Warren Buffett's structure Berkshire Hathaway, which defers all taxes. Um, now, other people can participate in that, but the, the really, really rich don't pay their fair share because they are allowed loopholes like, like mortgage interest. Why is mortgage interest deductible and no other interest is deductible? Just think about that. Let's just, just, just ruminate on that for a minute. Does that make sense? Who has the most mortgage interest? The average person renting or rich person with four homes? I don't know. Maybe it's the rich person with four homes. Uh, can, can I offer another explanation there, actually? Uh, and the reason why, like, you and I talk about housing a lot um, and I think the reason why it's so important from my perspective is that housing and land ownership is part of the social contract of the U.S. Like we have decided and institutionalized these ideas that owning a home equals a good thing. And we want people to own homes, to own their property. And like you can kind of trace that culturally back to, you know, we're, we're a nation of immigrants, right? <laughs> you know, people came over from uh, England and part of the deal uh, that got people to take that that journey across the Atlantic back then was you would get to own your own land. And I think a lot of that is translated into modern life and the social contract. And the reason why these charts are so important is because that social contract is changing. And it's a result of, I think, monetary and fiscal policy that's that's going on. Because if you look at it, I mean, we've shown the chart in like a million different ways. Housing is getting more and more affordable, and the rate that it's getting more unaffordable is accelerating. And what makes it so challenging, I actually love this this chart here on the bottom right where you're talking about elasticity. So the the, the you know the degree to which um, house pricing is influenced by interest rates, you can tell as as interest rates get lower and lower, you know, 
uh, the price of the home essentially becomes more, there's a convexity uh, principle that gets applied there. So it, it even makes me nervous, right? Like even if I were to be able to afford a home at these extreme prices, if interest rates move, I could lose a huge part of my investment. I don't know. And it just, yeah, I, I think- um, Well, it's, it's to your point. Look, um, everybody says, oh, but, but, but affordability is up because the monthly payment isn't high because we live in this you know, low interest rate world. And that's fine in theory, um, but that doesn't explain why the percentage of first-time home buyers is absolutely dropping like a stone. And but it says, oh, but it's so affordable, and everybody talks about payments, and don't talk about the cost of something. Talk about the payment, the monthly payment. Right. Well, that's fine, except in a world of rising rates, which is why, actually, I'm probably in the the tiny minority here. I actually don't think we're in an inflationary world. I think we're in a deflationary world. I mm. think interest rates are going to go lower, not higher. I think they're going to head to zero and then negative, uh, just like they did in Europe, just like they did in Japan, because that's the only way out, right? You have to force people out of cash. You have to force them through financial repression to move the capital out on the risk spectrum because no one has enough capacity to keep this debt cycle going. And and we're seeing it in terms of, everyone says, oh, there's a surfeit of savings. No, that's that's propaganda for we printed too much money and it's becoming worthless. And the only way to make it worth something is if you go out and spend it. So how do you get people to spend money? You make them afraid, right? That's that's fear. Fear is what people consume, right? It, it, it's like, I mean, I hate to say it this way, but it's like you can tell if, if, if a human is under a lot of stress in their life, they gain weight. <laughs> and like, why is that? Well, because they comfort eat and they... And they do, and they, they do things to make themselves comfortable, and that's it's, it's. And then there's some chemical and biological things that happen too with with hormones. But it's we're in this funky place, and um, maybe do you do you have the um, chart on uh, the repo? You know, there's all this nonsense about the debt ceiling, right? And I, yeah, and and the thing is, look if. If there were a debt ceiling, we actually wouldn't talk about it, right? Because it would actually be a rule. Um, it'd be like gravity, but but you can't change gravity, right? No matter how hard I try, I can't jump, right? Uh, there is gravity. Uh, I can't fly. Um, but the idea that there 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 is a debt ceiling that's been changed every however many years it is, four or six years. Um, forever means there is no ceiling. And so the nonsense of talking about it and, and Janet freaking yelling, saying, oh, we're gonna run out of cash if we don't increase the debt. No, you're not. I mean, so, and it's, the nonsense is, again, look at the increase. And, and again, it would be better in, in a log chart, but but you'd still see this this yellow line stair-stepping up and the idea that it's partisan, it's Democrats are in favor of it, or the Republicans are in favor of it. Look, we had the biggest increase 
in the deficit in the history of the world under a Republican president and Republican Congress. So don't talk to me about left and right. You know, it's just in and out, right? When you're in, you spend a lot and you get paid a lot by lobbyists and, and that's how it works. But, but go to the repo. The repo is interesting in that, um, you know, what is a repo, right? It's where uh, somebody sells an asset to the Fed and the Fed agrees to buy it back. Now, they say, so why did this spike? I mean, normally, you know, 100 billion, a couple spikes up to 400 billion. But now we're at a trillion. And the estimates are just going to go to 2 trillion by the end of the year. Well, what is that? That's debt. Oh, no, no, it's not debt. We, we didn't violate the debt ceiling. No, yes, you did, right? You just stopped issuing treasuries because you weren't allowed to because there was this artificial debt ceiling. And so the money had to come from somewhere. So the Fed just did the issuing. And so this is nonsense. This is, you know, moving the, the Potemkin village around to make people think that there's something there there, but there's no there there. This is money created out of thin air. And this is why housing prices are spiking. This is why your cup of coffee is spiking. It's why um, a rental car, oh God, I'm renting a car next week in San Francisco. Yeah. It's like, my mind was blown. Um, yeah. But, all right, so I, I took a lift from from New York when, when I saw you uh, out to the airport, $107. That's more than double, more than double what it was in 2019. Now, I didn't take any in 2020, but that's more than double what it was. Yeah. And at a certain point, does does it even matter what the explanation is for that? It's like, oh, well, you know, it's a, there's a driver shortage. I don't care. I, at a certain point, what does it matter? Who cares why it's happening? It's happening is the point. So, but back up for a second. Can you explain? I'm, I, to be honest, uh, reverse repo is not something that I understand super well. So can you make that connection? Like when you see this spike on the chart, what, what, what exactly does that mean? Again, I, I got to be honest. I, I could use an explanation from you. Yeah. So look, one of the interesting things about the, the banking system, remember the Fed is the apex predator of the banking system. Right? Mm -hmm. It is the banker's bank. And it was created to make the bankers really, really rich. Okay? It was created by J.P. Morgan and John D. Rockefeller's dad, Amory Aldrich. And go back and read the whole Aldrich plan stuff from the 1910s, and it's absolutely frightening. And one of my favorites is there's this picture of the inflation monster, and it looks like that mind flayer from Stranger Things. Hmm. And the crazy part is the Federal Reserve Bank Building on Eccles Street looks like the labs in Stranger Things. It's kind of freaky. Um, but but the, what the Fed does, right, is it allows banks to buy government bonds from them, okay, at a discount, and then sell them in the marketplace at a profit. It's a riskless transaction, okay? You're borrowing from the Fed and selling to the market. It's a riskless transaction, and you can lever that up supposedly only 11 or 12 times, but some of the banks do it 20 and used to do it 40 or 50. That's why layman happened. Yeah. But a riskless transaction, and I always say, you know, JP Morgan last year had zero negative trading days. It's not possible. No trader is perfect all the time. So it's not trading, right? It's just arbitrage. And so the, the treasury issues debt and the... Uh, Fed, okay, because there are no other buyers, right? The Chinese stopped buying our bonds. 
Russians aren't going to buy them. The Venezuelans certainly aren't going to buy them. So we've had this problem that we've got to issue all this debt because we incurred this massive liability in the budget deficit because of just craziness, cutting taxes and you know to, to, to super rich companies uh, as long as they bought back stock to make rich people richer. Um, and long story short, decreased demand for bonds. The bonds have to be issued to fund the deficit. So who buys them? The Fed. So the Fed buys them. Well, no. Who does the Fed buy them from? The Fed buys them from the primary dealers. So that's how the banks get reliquify their balance sheet. Well, here we weren't issuing treasuries, right? Now the money still has to get into the system, right? We still have to get all that money we're printing into the system, and so here the the banks can put on deposit bonds, okay, or other assets. And the Fed agrees to buy them back uh, at a uh, agreed upon price. And it's, it's, there's all this cash that's been created on the bank balance sheets because it comes through the, the treasury mechanism. They have to put it somewhere. So they put it back at the Fed. And the, this, this is where the Fed is playing the role of, uh, you know, it's like whack-a-mole. Uh, you know, the, the cash pops up and it used to go into the regular banking system and then it would sit as idle reserves that the banks deposited with the Fed and they'd get paid interest on it. And again, lever it up and, and make riskless transactions. Now, um, we don't have enough treasuries and this will get solved as soon as this debt ceiling is changed and the treasury can issue more treasuries because then this will get sucked up by those treasuries. Yeah. It's just a short-term hide hide the money thing. Howdy everyone. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, the leading prime brokerage solution for all things digital assets, providing secure custody, trading and financing to an institutional suite of clients. On the retail side of things, I am more than happy to make this endorsement because I have been a custody customer of Coinbase since the day that I got into crypto. I still keep the vast majority of my assets there, actually, and I do it for one reason and one reason alone, so that I can sleep easy at night knowing that my funds are safe. It's the same reason when family or friends ask me, where should I buy my first Bitcoin? I direct them to Coinbase. And now, finally, when institutions are starting to ask, what's the most safe infrastructure to use? I only point them in one direction, to Coinbase Prime. And the reason that I do that is because it is peace of mind. When it comes to security, Everything is top of the line on this platform, and it's a white glove experience to boot. They've been securing client assets at scale for eight years, which as of Q2 of this year is $180 billion. They have an industry-leading insurance policy, and they're audited by Blue Chip auditors so that you can sleep easy at night too. So stop listening to me, click the link at the bottom of this episode, and go check them out for yourself. And when you get there, tell them that I sent you because I love to get credit. Howdy, everyone. If you're a long-term investor in Ethereum, then listen up because I am talking directly to you here. If you've been listening to the show for the last two months, then you know that I am a big, big fan of ETH and the entire world of DeFi that's being built on top of it. It's honestly just super, super interesting, but it's also probably the single greatest wealth creation opportunity that I am ever going to see in my entire life. And the best thing about ETH is that you can hold it, but with this new upgrade to 2.0, you can also stake it and earn yield that way. The only problem is under the current set of rules, Unless you have 32 ETH, or at today's price is almost $100,000, then you can't stake it. Until now. 
Our good friends over at Matrix Sport just unrolled a solution which allows investors with as few as five ETH to start staking today. At the time of this recording, you can earn up to 9% APY, although that's going to vary based on the protocol. So stop what you're doing. Stop listening to me. Go click the link at the bottom of this episode. If it's on YouTube or Spotify or Apple or whatever it is, click that link, go over to the website and tell them that I sent you. All right, give me a little credit, but definitely go click the link. Start learning about how you can stake your ETH and earn yield or other yield generation opportunities. My, you know, my honest, like emotional reaction seeing all these stories about, are we going to raise the debt ceiling? Are we not? America's going to run out of money. My honest reaction is just, just stop. Just stop saying that. That's, you know that that's not the case. Like, I know that that's not the case. Can we just skip this part of the dance? And I don't know. I just, um, I want, I want to check myself because people uh, in the comments will check me when I start to get too emotional about stuff. But yeah, I just, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm looking at the crumbling of trusted institutions happen right in front of my face. And there's something just, you know, going back to that comment, you know, what we were talking earlier about inflation and are we living through it? Um, there's something really offensive as a human uh, when you're noticing something. Uh, and for someone to say that thing that you know to be true that you're seeing with your eyes uh, is not correct. Uh, the millennial or Gen Z slang for that is gaslighting. And I kind of feel like I'm being gaslit. Um, and I don't know. Yeah, I just, I kind of, you know, when I'm watching these back and forth, these politicians, I don't know, they're like these little signposts. Have you have you seen the, the Nancy Pelosi memes, by the way, like the stock trader Nancy Pelosi memes? Oh, you, this is what I would love to get your opinion on. So the two Fed governors that resigned, Kaplan and Rosengren, I think. What are your thoughts on that? I feel like that could be a really big lightning rod type moment where people kind of look back and they're like, look at that, trust eroding. Uh, and actually there is, there's, there's another chart that somehow I, I didn't put in here, but uh, it's confidence in uh, Brainerd versus Powell, who's going to be the next Fed, Fed chair. And it's looking less and less like Powell's going to be, uh, and it's looking more like like Brainerd is going to be. What's your thought on, I don't know, just on the on the Kaplan-Rosengren thing, like just trusting the Fed in general? Hey, what's your take on all that? Totally agree with you. And I, and I love how you phrased it because look, I call the blockchain era the trust net for a reason. <laughs> Right, it it establishes a single point of truth forever. Right, I mean it is permanent record. It solves all of these trust in institutions. You and I don't need to trust a bank. I mean I've told the story before. I, I have a recurring nightmare. It's real that I mm -hmm. go to the ATM and I punch in and it says zero. How would I prove it's not zero? I don't have statements. I don't have any way to to, to battle Bank of America. They right. just say I I don't know what happened to your money. It's gone. And so I think that the Fed, the Fed is under attack and it's been under attack really for the last four or five years in that the government is, is in a bad place, right? They, they can't right. balance the budget. They don't want to balance the budget. You know, you had the quote from, from the thing of the woman literally with a straight face, press secretary saying that the 3.5 trillion 3.5 trillion, tri trillion, a dollar every second for 31,710 years times three and a half. Okay. Yeah. So a hundred years saying it's free. It, it will cost zero. Now I know it's, it's how you put air quotes around the word cost because they're going to chop other things. No, they're not. They never do. And so it's, it's nonsense. But it, I think what's happened is the Fed's under attack. And so what they're going to do 
is if you're on the Fed board and you agree with MMT and you agree with profligate spending and you agree to pat the politicians on the head and look the other way, you're in. If you actually, remember, remember when Jerome Powell got picked? Mm -hmm. He was pictured as a hawk. Jerome the hawk. Then he became J, the dove. Okay, now he's the letter J in a hoodie as a pusher. Like he's given people shots of steroids mm -hmm. in the back alley of Wall, Wall and Broad. And so he's been totally nuked. And, but he actually said, right? Maybe, I don't know if he actually said it or if we're interpreting it because we're wishful thinking. No, we're not going to ban crypto. He's actually said, yes, I'm going to taper. And the MMTers are like, no, you're freaking not. You are never tapering. Yeah. Tapering is a yeah. joke. This is QE forever. QE infinity. Okay. The China, uh, Japanese, the China, Japanese said they were going to end QQE in 2007. Still going. Okay. And we said we were going to end it. It's still going. Europe said they were going to end it. It's still going. And it has to accelerate because it's the only way out. So I think the, the erosion of trust is so true and so clear. And we have, tr we have erosion of trust of everything, right? Who trusts the, the, the government, that the government's doing things in their best interest? Very few people. Some, not zero, but very few people. That trust has gotten eroded, particularly in the last year and a half. The whole nonsense about vaccinated versus people who have natural immunity, the fact that someone who's had the disease isn't recognized as having immunity, that, that erodes trust, right? That's just a, that's a violation of science, right? Just erodes trust. And all of these things go to, um, if you believe that governments are created you know, by the people for the people, then this would be disconcerting. If you actually believe that governments are created by the elites for the elites, at least then you know what you rail against and, and then you pull out the pitchforks every now and then and, and overthrow. And I don't think we're there yet, but it's getting pretty bad. And I think it's about to get really, really bad for the average person when they realize that their incomes aren't gonna rise, that their job prospects aren't going to uh, increase and improve, and that these payments they've been getting, these STEMI payments and their calls for UBI are gonna fall on deaf ears because the people already got elected, right? The reason people give away free money is to get votes. Right? Look around the world. Look at every dictatorship in the world. That's how you get. That's how you get elected. You give people like in Argentina. How do you get elected? You give people free energy. Literally, you give them free electricity. Um, Bread and circuses in Rome. Exactly. So mm -hmm. I that's, that sun is is kind of interesting. Um, so I, mean, I look bad enough on camera, but with this sunlight, you're the silver fox, Mark. That's ah. like what you're. That's what you've been dubbed. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> the, the commenters love you. Um, can I, can I, I have a, I have a theory about this actually. I'd love to run by you because I feel like this could be a cool principle to get translated into crypto governance. I feel like one, one of the things that a government should do is eventually, one of my beefs actually with crypto overall is uh, 
decentralization is kind of a catch-all for a bunch of things. They're like, we don't want, you know, these centralized entities without source power, and we want it to be fair. Well, you can't have decentralization and fair at the same time, because if you give people a level playing field, then certain people, the cream rises to the top, right? Uh, and suddenly you get these, these unfair distributions. And I feel like one of the important functions, and if you want to test that theory, all of the authoritarian regimes in his, like all of those... Authoritarian regimes and putting fairness at the center of everything go hand in hand. Like, look at look at the rhetoric around Russia. Look at the rhetoric around China. You'd think of them as these authoritarian regimes, but the rhetoric around that is it should be fair for everyone. It's the communism thing. Socialization, and, and, right? Social and you equality. need it's 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 uh it's contrary to human nature. I, I, I'm sorry to your point. You're 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 100 right. And look, that is that is how the hierarchy works, right? The only way you can right, get right. to the top of the pyramid is to assure the people at the bottom of the pyramid that they're all the same. Right. Now, so, you're all the same, but you're not the same as me, is, is how it goes. Is the, yeah, that's the animal farm thing. And like, look, yeah. so- <laughs> Yes, oh my gosh, nah. you're so good. Yeah, so my, so my thing with government is that maybe one design principle for government should be when things get very unfair, right? Um, then it's your, it's the government's, uh, responsibility to redistribute in a way that is kind of pre-agreed upon. So I feel like that could actually be a cool thing to implement in crypto protocols where it's like, look, it's, it's all fair in the beginning, uh, just because of the rules of uh, natural competition and unfair distribution of talent. Um, a certain amount of people are going to accumulate outside say, and after some predetermined period of time, uh, something in the protocol will actually, there'll be a redistributive action basically to make things more fair and there'll be a reset. And I feel like what we're struggling through is the government is like an attempt to do that right now on the national stage and we're failing at it. I mean, I mean, these proposals to tax unrealized gains, I mean, it's just nuts. Like, come on, that doesn't, that doesn't make, and that offends me as an entrepreneur because I'm like, come on, dude, I've like way underpaid myself for years and years and years because, you know, there's an idea at the end of this that there could be some kind of result. And, you know, it scares me. It scares me to hear people talk like that. Well, look, we can fix the tax problem really easy but no one wants to talk about it um, because there's too many jobs tied up in current tax code and too many lobbyists that have gotten their loopholes in. But tax fixing taxes is super simple. Don't tax income. should never tax income. Right? Mm. Income tax is a stupid idea. Okay? You should tax consumption. Right? Tax consumption. Because you can't cheat. Right? When you go to a restaurant, you pay the bill, mm. you pay your tax. You buy a shirt, you pay the tax. And everyone says, oh, but it's regressive. No, it's not. You can exempt really ex less expensive things and food, et cetera. And you can super tax the, the mega yachts and, and all the stuff. And will people not buy a yacht because they're paying half in tax? Of course they'll buy the yacht because they want the yacht because they want to show how big their thing is. So uh, that's, that, th that would solve everything. It captures all the black market, no more illegal money, doesn't get reported as income, but they can still buy the Ferrari or the Lamborghini, all of it, right? And income is about wealth creation and entrepreneurship and prosperity. Mm -hmm. You don't want to discourage that. You don't want to tell somebody who has a great idea, oh geez, they're gonna keep 90% of what I make on that and I'm just not gonna do it. No, no, don't discourage wealth creation and uh, you, what you wanna do is, is, anyway. But we do need to fund, and, and your point about, about um, unequal potential outcomes in crypto is really important. And we don't have time for it today, but we'll do it on another show. 
is one of the things I, I, I don't like about Bitcoin is I, I wish it would have been airdropped at the very beginning that everybody would have got some. You didn't have to use it. You could have, you know, many people would have just thrown it away or given it to somebody because they didn't understand it. But to me, that would have been better than having such high concentration because everyone says, well, they'll sell to the, the, the later adopters. I'm like, yeah, maybe, kind of. Um, but I still wish there was a way to get broad. It's, it's kind of what I loved about the DM project or the Libra project, right? They were going to airdrop it out to three and a half billion people. That's pretty cool. Now, that has other issues to it. It's not like a decentralized, perfect money like Bitcoin. Um, but it, it would be a gateway to perfect money uh, to get more people involved in the crypto, crypto ecosystem. And I've, I've got a question for you of like a real world example of when maybe that hasn't actually gone super well. Curious to get your opinion. The perestroika that happened in Russia, right? When they took all those nationalized companies and they basically gave shares away to everyone, right? In an equal way. And, and what happened? Uh, thugs came around and said, hey, give me those shares or sell it to me for pennies on the dollar or I'm going to break your kneecaps. And it created oligarchs in Russia. hundred uh, percent. So. However, I hundred percent agree with you. And, and it is hard in the absence of rule of law, which I think you can have better rule of law with smart contracts. But that's that, that, that mm -hmm. maybe, maybe. But there's no question that one of the things I love actually about living in the United States it, that it's not the 1860s where I had to sit on my porch with my gun and hope that the guys riding in had smaller totally guns than me. Mm -hmm. but, but rule of law is really important and property rights are really important. And that's why digital property rights are so incredible. That's why tokenization is so important. And to your point, yes, it was bad that the oligarchs were created, but here's what one thing that did happen. The quality of life in Russia went up and it went mm. up by a lot. Why? Because Putin came in and said to the oligarchs, all right, here's the deal. Yeah, you stole all that from the people and our banking system's in shambles. And here's the deal, right? Bring the money back on shore. No taxes, no questions, no jail time. One criteria has to go into the state bank, spare bank, because we need, you know, a good banking system. $300 billion comes back. And there was one thing you had to do, not run for political office. So most of the oligarchs were like, good, don't want to be a politician. And uh, Abramovich moved to London, bought Chelsea Football Club and date supermodels. Kordakovsky, I'm going to run for president. Now, where is he? He's in jail on a nuclear waste dump just to rub it in. And so I don't disagree with you that it, it has the potential to go wrong if the thugs and, and, and we know mafias exist, you know, broadly speaking. Um, but I do think in the digital world, you could fix some of that. Now, to your point, if someone comes to your house, I said this the other day, if someone comes to your house, because they were talking about China ban and, oh, they can't ban, they can't take, they can't seize my coins. If someone comes to your house with a gun and says, private keys or I shoot you, some people might give up their private keys. They would. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm like, sorry. I, I actually would, and so don't come to my I house. I would too. Gun, but what do you mean? It's a rational. Yeah, totally. I, have I mean, I'm it's just, and 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 there, therein is a reason why maybe some centralization is a good thing, right? So yeah, so I, I'm trying to like formalize 
this idea that I'm having. I feel like maybe I'm not doing a great job describing it. I might need some more time. I might try to write it. But I, I feel like the ideas of fairness and fairness is, an, is, is not something that is naturally, it's not a natural way for humans to live. And there's a reason why when fairness is the doctrine of a government, you need an authoritarian regime to enforce it because it's not compatible with human nature. And yeah, I totally agree with you. I think one of the things that I think a lot about that's really interesting is like, to me, crypto is all about governance. It solves a coordination problem with humans. And where can that happen in the digital realm better than where it happens in, in the physical realm? And like, I don't know, I could see a case, I just don't know if this would actually work. I could see a case where you'd say, just like in the United States, we're more valuable as a country if there isn't huge disparate wealth, wealth, right? So people aren't socially angry with each other, right? It's actually better economically for it to be more even. I could see the same thing happening with a token, right? Uh, and, a, and a network and say, we don't really want a network. It's less economically valuable if it's not as distributed. So we're going to bake something right into the governance where if there's a certain, I don't know, whatever statistics you use. And this is perfect. And so, so let's do this again. And it's perfect because we got, we got the generational issue thing. So I, mm -hmm. I agree with you on many points. The one nuance, I actually believe that the massive successes that are created by entrepreneurship should be celebrated and not penalized. Absolutely believe that. And, and here's why. The number of jobs created by those tech entrepreneurs and by the businesses and the quality of life increase by all those people. Like I have two, I have two nephews. I love them. And you know, they struggled with school and stuff, and but they have now built an amazing business supporting basically they do the build out of the warehouses for Amazon. Mm. They are crushing it. They are making tons of money. They're having fun and they are running their own business. And they're kids in their 20s. I mean, and it's awesome. And now their their stepfather helped them and all but but they're doing the work. And and so they didn't have to go down the path of going to an Ivy League school and getting a bunch of debt. I mean, they've built so do I think, to your point, that maybe there could be uh, a different uh, split of the ownership of, of at the top and that one guy didn't need to get it all? Yes, but, and here's my but. All, none of those people that now are in that system, maybe there's 4 million workers for Amazon. Mm -hmm. I think that number's right. Um, none of them were coerced. Not one of them was forced to do that. It's not like a, a, a labor camp. And, and this is where I get into it, and again, topic for another day, like increasing minimum wage. It's just price controls. Price controls never work. If somebody wants to do that same job for less because they have a different need hierarchy, that should be fine. And what we want is profit maximization. And then we want to have a system that recycles the profit for the common good. Yeah. And again, more, more that we can talk about, but I, I, I got to run to it. I know, I know, I know. You got to let you go. Uh, awesome, Mark. This has been a ton of fun. Uh, no stories this week, guys. This was charts, charts, charts. But I feel like this was a good discussion here, especially at the no, end. No, it was good. And, and look, I, I love the fact that you are one incredibly well read and and thoughtful thanks, thanks. and and philosophical, and and so we can go down those paths. But look, it is an Animal Farm 1984 kind of world, yeah. and if people haven't read those books, go back and read them because it. It is amazing 
right? They're no new ideas, right? They're just ideas that are resurfaced over Besides, and over and over. And there's totally. a lot of great ideas in old books. And if you want to get smarter, read less news and read more books. Could not endorse that more heavily. I completely agree with you. All right, Mark, I know you got to run. This has been a ton of fun. I'll see you back next week. All right. Take care. Get on the margin. Get on the margin.